Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, today we are discussing, we're, we're not only discussing an ant movie, uh, which of course is a subset of killer bug movies in general. Uh, we are discussing what might be the ant movie, uh, the the most ambitious ant movie, um, in many ways the most perplexing and thought provoking ant movie. Uh, I'm super excited to talk about it. I actually just had as a as a pre recording snack a couple of ants on a log. I got out the <laughs> uh, the celery and the uh-huh. peanut butter and the raisins. It just felt appropriate. You know, I feel like that reflects our higher ant consciousness now, because the important thing to understand about ants is they don't even mind if you eat a few of them. You know, right. that, that's sort of like uh, the it's like the the skin cells that you would scrape off of somebody's hand while hugging them. Yeah. You know, it just, it just like doesn't bother the colony as a whole. And I would say that's actually reflective of the movie we're talking about today overall. Uh, the movie is the 1970s sci-fi ant flick. Phase four, which we alluded to possibly doing an episode on in our um, in our in our core episode about ants building traps. We talked about some uh, biology papers about about ant behaviors, whether ant whether these structures ants build should be understood as traps or not. Uh, but this movie came up because we were talking about ant mm-hmm. movies, and I said, you know, there's this ant movie I've been looking at in the video store for years, just based on the DVD cover. It's called Phase Four. The cover is like this kind of cool design but it's got ants crawling out of a hole in somebody's hand never seen it and we, we went in just based on the dvd cover and i'd say this was a hit yeah yeah um after we had we'd already decided this is the one um i actually received word from someone on the stuff to blow your mind discord uh email us if you want to invite to that uh who they were like yeah this is this one's good you're gonna want to cover this one for weird house um I also have, of course, looked it up when we were talking about it. I looked it up in Michael Weldon's Psychotronic Encyclopedia film, in which he called it, quote, uh, a great science fiction thriller starring countless real ants. Uh, (laughs) Yes. So that that was a a solid endorsement. But it still wasn't able to prepare me for all that was to come. Well, so when I look at the other side of the critical response to this movie – I think some people have been kind of critical of it lacking in human depth. And I, I'll say, okay, I'm with them there. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is not really a humans movie and the human characters. There are few of them and the ones that are there, we don't learn much about them and they're not super dimensional, but I think that's okay because this is a movie that encourages you to also see humans as sort of just uh, cells on the whole body of the human species. Yeah. Yeah. And, in, in very delightful ways, it is a it is a movie almost by ants for ants. It is mm. a, a movie that is one hundred percent fresh on uh, on ant rotten tomatoes. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is um, it, it is it is such an interesting film uh, in in so many ways. Like um, oh, it's just it's it's going to be fun to discuss everything. Um, uh, I, I'm almost not sure where to start here. You know, the funny thing about ant rotten tomatoes is. There are no in-between scores. It's either right. 100% or 0% every right. time. <laughs> They're unified. Well, maybe we should talk about ant movies more generally, because this is, of course, not the only one. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I, I had a very uh, powerful, vivid memory that came rushing back to me just the other day uh, when when I started trying to recall if I'd seen other ant movies before. And it was a memory of being about 12 years old and watching this terrible 
made for TV killer ant movie that I, I think was on the Fox network or, or one of those, you know, um, it was one of those made for TV movies that they used to advertise in the weeks leading up to it. So they'd have a commercial with, you know, mm-hmm. Don LaFontaine or somebody on there saying, This Sunday at eight, nine central, you will learn the true meaning of terror. Ants. And you'd get a music sting. And, and man, that, I don't know if they focus group tested that or whatever, <laughs> but that worked on my 12 year old brain. I had, that was like, I had to make an appointment to watch uh, a movie that, that I went back and looked up and I found out it is called, Marabunta colon Legion of Fire. And I rewatched the trailer and ooh, this looks stinky. <laughs> it looks like it is no good. It has some absolutely atrocious uh, CGI ants stripping a moose clean down to the bone like piranhas on land. Uh, it does have Mitch Pileggi from uh, the X-Files and Shocker. And it also has something that's common to some of these ant movies where there are scenes of columns of army ants that are treated like rivers of molten lava in a volcano movie. So you get, I don't know, a kid stranded up on top of a crate and then on all sides of them, the ants are just flowing and they've got to jump over them to get to safety or something. (laughs) What is it with shocker connections? We're going to have another one of those coming up. That's right. Uh, So I guess when I think of of ant movies that I saw as a kid, I, I... my mind probably goes to 1954's Them, uh, because this one was in, I think was in pretty pretty um, uh, tight rotation on like the Turner stations back in the day. Like there was a yeah. pretty good chance you're going to catch part of Them, uh, you know, especially on like a Sunday afternoon. Uh, but, but other notable ant movies include 1977's Empire of the Ants. Uh, there's also 1977's uh, TV movie, Ants, with an exclamation point, starring everyone's favorite, uh, Verk Bist, uh, Robert Foxworth, of, <laughs> um, of uh, um, what was it? God, I can't even it? remember the name of that movie. Oh, Death oh, Moon or Death something? Moon, Death Moon fame. Okay. <laughs> uh, but that one also starred Suzanne Summers, Brian Dennehy, uh, Anita Gillette. Uh, this is the actor who played Liz Lemon's mom on 30 mm-hmm. Rock, and also Bernie Casey. So does Foxworth play another work beast in this movie? Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm guessing like yeah, maybe a laid back work beast that has to go up against in this case ants. I haven't seen it, but um, it, oh, okay, it sounds good. Um, Wait, so question about them though. Mm-hmm. Them is a movie not with regular ants, but with big ants, right? It's like an atomic age mutation movie. Correct, correct. And okay. I think that, that leads into our next major distinction to make here. When we're talking about ant movies, you're going to either deal with giant ant movies or you're going to deal with normal-sized ants. So it's either going to be a giant bug feature or it's going to be a swarm feature. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is when you have the giant ant, um, it's going to be more about individual ants. Uh, that's the spectacle of it, right? Uh, this Generally, you're doing a lot to get one giant ant on the screen. Uh, but... Uh, when you're dealing with the swarm, uh, of course, th- you have this more accurate reflection of what ants are. They are not the individual. They are the group. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I, I would say broadly, I, I think I'd break ant movies into three categories. So you've okay. got your giant ant movies, in which case the ant is not really important. It's not important that it's an ant. It's just a giant bug, and it could be any bug. It could be a giant right. praying mantis, giant spider. It's just a giant bug that attacks. 
So I think that's probably going to be my least favorite kind overall because that you lose the essential antiness, you know, the the mm-hmm. the formic uh, the formic aromas of the premise is just like any giant bug will do because they're just big and they'll tear you apart. Yeah, might as well go with a more interesting solitary uh, bug, uh, you know, insect yeah. or arachnid, like a scorpion, for example. Sure, giant scorpion, that'd be great. Giant spider, obviously. Okay, but then when you break it down, you keep the ants small. I think there are basically two ways you can go. One is the um, just ants as ants, like you know they're kind of a uh, an environmental threat almost. The, this comes back to the like they're like rivers of molten lava in a volcano movie. Mm-hmm. You know they're just like as the floor is lava, except instead of lava, it's ants. But then the other way to go is to think about ants as a sort of organization principle and and have the horror lie there. And that's actually where phase four goes, which I think is interesting to think about ants, not just as uh, something that turns the floor into lava, but something that has uh, has organized behaviors that can surprise you and, and make you afraid. Yeah, yeah. That, and that's definitely the, you know, the realm that we're going to be venturing into with phase four here. I guess the real distinction there is that like it does the danger of the ants lie in their in their numbers alone or in their eusociality and phase right. 4 it's in their eusociality yeah and this is we we have to drive home this is definitely one of the more if not the most ambitious ant movies and intelligent ant movies like they're they really went for it with this uh, particular film trying to to, to use ants to their their full potential cinematically. So uh, it's it's a rare beast, I think. It's a work beast in many ways, because I would <laughs> say this is also a highly technical film. As, as a, we've already said, you know, it, it may be lacking in some human depth, but as a sort of visual art project, I'd say this movie is, is a home run. I mean, it is a... Uh, a, a beautiful, weird celebration of geometry of like colors and lines and angles and close up photography of ants, and I would say very good special effects. There are parts where the uh, the ant puppetry is so good I sometimes couldn't tell if I was looking at uh, you know micro photography of real ants or if it was one of the puppets. Yeah, yeah, it was very difficult to tell, and uh, and I should also throw in that not only are the visuals great, but the the sound design and music is also really noteworthy, and we'll we'll touch on that as we go. Yeah. Now, Phase Four was uh, was something of a flop at the time. Apparently, maybe it was ahead of its time, um, but uh, over the years, it's been particularly influential on various visionary filmmakers. Apparently, um, I, I know it's you know, Michael Weldon liked it. I've read that. Um, uh, uh, Panos Cosmatos uh, was a fan of it. Yeah, I, apparently inspired Beyond the Black Rainbow. Right? Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is a film I, I have a, a lot of admiration for, um, and and certainly having seen Phase Four now, I can I can definitely see uh, where those inspiration points are. Um, apparently, apparently as well, uh, this was also a film that was riffed in the KTMA, uh, like like basically proto. Uh, uh, season of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, and wow. uh, And that's an episode you can actually find places, you know, uploaded on, on video st- uh, servers and all. I've never watched it because the KTMA episodes are, um, you know, it's a different beast. It was the, the yeah. first season. It's, it's not quite like watching a full-blown MST3K episode. Yeah, they're, they're, I would say in general, they're not as engaging, not as good. And the, the weird thing about it is I recall some of the movies. So this is like when they were a, a public access show mm-hmm. in Minnesota or wherever it was before they yeah. uh, got syndicated and became a, a, a national show. But the weird thing about that early season is I, I haven't seen a lot of them, but I know they do some movies that are kind of 
uh, seems like higher budget, maybe better movies than they do in the later seasons, actually. Like, I think they end up doing The Green Slime, which is a movie we may come mm-hmm. back to on Weird House Cinema someday, especially because it's got its own really groovy rock theme song. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they'd quite calibrated what was an MST3K film at that point. Um, so, at any rate, if, if if our discussion here perks your interest and you're not quite ready to watch it without some sort of uh, riffing structure in place then i you know i guess you could check out that ktma episode but uh for the most part i think this is a film that stands on its own and is richly enjoyable on its own and more to the point in high visual quality that you're not going to get with um, the rip of a of an old public access television broadcast now, while we're talking about uh, looking up this movie, I got to say also is a, a bizarre coincidence as weird of a name as phase four with the Roman numeral four IV mm-hmm. is for a movie. There is actually a totally unrelated other movie called phase four that came out in the early 2000s. It looks like some kind of Dean Cain conspiracy action thriller. <laughs> yeah. 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 So word of warning. Uh, if don't get in too much of a hurry when you're <laughs> buying and renting one. this when you don't want to wind up with the Brian Bosworth uh, uh, film. <laughs> if you watch a Brian Bosworth film, you want to watch uh, Stone Cold from 1991. So I've never seen that one, but while we were chatting about this, uh, you got me to look up stills from it. And Brian Bosworth in Stone Cold is <laughs> fresh. I mean, like, God, look at his hair, the sunglasses. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, that, that was, and I remember it being a fun action B movie because you have uh, Lance Henriksen's in it, William Forsyth is in it, so it's, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's like a biker fighting movie or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, give me the elevator pitch on Phase Four before we hit the trailer audio. Okay, so um, what if there was some sort of a solar conjunction and it caused all ants to suddenly declare a peace treaty and turn their attention on other species uh, on the rest of the world. So basically a nature strikes back, but this time it strikes smart and with you social precision. Great premise. Let's hear some audio. In the next few moments, we will try to give you an impression of a new kind of film experience. If your curiosity is aroused, you are ready for Phase 4. How do you fight a force that knows what your next move will be before you think of it? All right, that's a solid trailer right there. I agree. And now uh, one of the things we've already talked about is, that you know, I've had my theory that really the star of this movie, if it is not ants, you could say it's ants. But if it's not ants, it's still not humans. It is uh, visual geometry. It's colors and lines and shapes and design. And I think that totally makes sense once you realize who the director of this film was, because I think uh, the director, Saul Bass, this was his only movie. Am I right about that? This was his only feature length film. Yeah, he did some other short films and experimental films and some, uh, you know, sort of uh, documentary style shorts. Mm -hmm. But this is the, the, yeah, the only full length film he did. 
And it seems to me very much a, a graphic designers or art directors kind of film. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, n- not really an actor's film. It's not really very script driven. It's a movie about showing you pictures. And the style of those pictures reads very much to me as that, uh, that, that mid-century modern design style, the kind of thing that you see a lot on, uh, on Mad Men or, or whatever. And uh, I think that makes sense because I've read that Mad Men was in many ways trying to copy the style of the director of this film, Saul Bass. Yeah, because Saul Bass uh, is something of a legend, um, certainly in the, the graphic design f- uh, field here. Uh, he lived 1920 through 1996, and he was, uh, for starters, the title sequence, title design guy of the day. He crafted title sequences for, ma- for major films from the mid-1950s all the way through the mid-90s. Uh, we're talking about the likes of The Seven-Year Itch, Vertigo, Psycho, Spartacus, West Side Story, Seconds, Broadcast News, Big, Goodfellas, Cape Fear, and Casino. Um, I should also note, it, note that in addition to directing Phase 4, he, of course, did the title design. Uh, you're not going to – if you're Saul Bash, you're not going to trust that to anybody else. This is your baby. You're doing the titles. And the title design is great. It is. Um, uh, like you said, the uh, uh, the Mad Men uh, is often credited as kind of an homage to his work uh, and some of the visual elements there. Uh, he did logos as well for a number of big-name companies throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I was reading something, too, about the longevity of his designs uh, in, on, on that front. He also did some pretty famous movie posters, including uh, the aforementioned films, but also Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Oh, that's interesting. Did did Saul Bass do the uh, the credit sequence for Doctor No, the first James Bond movie? Uh, that's I think he had some connection with the Bond film. Uh, I didn't put it in my notes, but that sounds right. If not Doctor No, one of the the Bond films he has connections to. It seems to kind of fit into his design clade. The, I was looking uh, at some of uh, the rejected poster designs that he did for The Shining. Uh, stuff like he he had one that that heavily fe- featured the uh, the the hedge labyrinth, the hedge maze. And uh, Kubrick had rejected that one because he didn't want too much focus to be put on that. Uh, but I was I was reading a post about this at uh, faroutmagazine.co.uk, and it had uh, images from uh, the, the original correspondence between Bass and Kubrick. And you can see that Saul Bass has uh, has signed uh, like the cover letter here, and he includes this wonderful. Uh, it's either an illustration or a stamp. Uh, of himself as a fish. So it's like his sort of mild-mannered, mustached, uh, bespeckled uh, uh, um, uh, face here uh, on a fish's body. Uh, It's pretty amusing. Is that a joke on him being a bass? I guess so, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) His Shining poster is worth looking up because I love the design. It's like it it shows uh, just three sort of silhouettes heading into the opening of of a maze and – Mm-hmm. And part of me wonders if did Kubrick reject this just because he was in a bad mood and he was being difficult or. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Because it's a great poster. Now, like we said, Phase 4 was Bass's only full-length film, though he made six other short films, including Why Man Creates from 1968, which uh, won an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short Subject. His other films include the 1980 Robert Redford-produced The Solar Film, promoting solar energy over fossil fuels. Uh, He also made a very interesting-looking 1984 short titled Quest, based on the Ray Bradbury story Frost and Fire. I I looked this one up. I I found a 
like a, a, a rip of it on one of the, the uh, video streaming sites, but I didn't watch it because in part, in part it it looks l- too interesting. I, I feel like mm-hmm. I need to see this in a, uh, a, a like a higher visual format uh, or something. I wonder if but, there's a uh, disc out there that collects his his smaller works or something. I would hope so. Yeah, or um, yeah. or perhaps uh, there's a, one of the Blu-rays uh, that we allude to uh, later on for this film have, has uh, some extras like that, but. Uh, it, it looks very cool and definitely has that uh, the sort of the, the sci-fi visual sensibilities that we'll discuss in relation to this film. Right. Uh, I'll, I also want to point out that he often worked with his wife and creative partner Elaine Bass on these projects. Right. So, so if you've heard us talk in the past about Rub the Fur movies, I would say this is a really excellent example of one of those. This is a design first movie, and the pleasure of it is almost all about texture it is a celebration of surfaces <laughs> now it did have a writer um uh, mayo simon born 1928 uh this is the screenwriter who wrote the Westworld sequel future world in 76 this had peter fonda and yule brenner in it uh, also the 1969 film marooned starring gregory peck and gene hackman uh that one won an academy award for visual effects uh, but Simon went on to create the NBC TV show Man from Atlantis, which I'd never heard of before, starring Patrick Duffy of Dallas fame and Belinda Montgomery, who some of you might remember as being Doogie Howser's mom. I do not remember. It, it looks very fun in a mid, like mid-70s like uh, mid TV sci-fi sort of way. Now, we've already said that this is not really an actor's film. In fact, it's not even really a very human film. But uh, I guess we should mention some of the cast members. Right. Uh, First and foremost, we have Nigel uh, Davenport playing Dr. Ernest D. Hubbs. Um, Now, Davenport lived 1928 through 2013. English actor known for 1966's A Man for All Seasons, in which he played uh, the Duke of Norfolk and 1981's Chariots of Fire, in which he played Lord uh, Birkenhead. Um, that, that one, had, I, uh, I've only seen parts of Chariots of Fire, and it was many years ago. Um, it's got a pretty extensive cast, uh, so I, I don't specifically remember where he fit into that, but of course it's a, it's a famous movie and has a tremendous score by uh, Vangelis. Nigel Davenport seems like an actor you call in for gravitas. Yeah, yeah, he has a great presence, and a great presence in this where he plays the... Um, determined and at times reckless. At time, he, later on in the film, he basically becomes kind of a, an ant-focused um, Captain Ahab yes. uh, in yeah. many ways. So he catches he's, a, a terrible case of mad scientist disease. Yes. So he's, he's perfect casting for this. I can't imagine anyone else here. Uh, he, was, he was also in the 1977 adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Island of Dr. Moreau. This is one I fondly remember from catching on TBS or TNT back in the day. This one starred Burt Lancaster and Michael York. Uh, he apparently plays Scrooge's dad in the uh, 1984 George C. Scott adaptation of A Christmas Carol. And he's also in 1984's Greystoke, The <gasps> Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, starring Christopher Lambert. Oh, Wow. Well, who is he in Greystoke? Is, is he is he is he Tarzan's dad or something? Um, you know, I, I Greystoke is another one that I've only seen parts of on TV uh-huh. uh, when I was much younger. I've not. I don't think I've watched it in full. Uh, I'm. I believe he plays one of the um, the grumpy British guys. 
Like generally, that's <laughs> oh, I think there are a few of those. Yeah, yeah, that's that's generally your casting for Davenport. Well, all right. So the basically the two main characters of this movie are the two scientists who go in to investigate the ant phenomenon, and so Davenport plays one of them. He plays Hubs, and then the mm-hmm. other scientist is one named Lesko, who is played by the actor Michael Murphy. That's right. Uh, born in 1938, American actor, best known for his work with Robert Altman. Uh, he did seven pictures for Altman. Um, they include the likes of Countdown, uh, The Cold Day in the Park, MASH, the original film, uh, Brewster McCloud, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Nashville, Kansas City. He mm. also appeared in Woody Allen's Manhattan, Peter Weir's The Year of Living Dangerously, and Oliver Stone's Salvador. He also worked with uh, John Salis, uh, Silver City. He was in Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. And, of course, he was in, uh, he was in Tim Burton's Batman Returns. Mm. Um, he well, also he's the mayor, up, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's the mayor of uh, Gotham City there. Yeah. Uh, I guess he was only one term because I don't think he pops up in another <laughs> Batman film. But um, uh, he was also in a movie called Count Yorga, uh, Vampire. And uh, this is our other Shocker connection because he was in Wes Craven's Shocker. He plays Peter Berg's dad in Shocker. <laughs> He's like a detective who's on the case trying to chase down Mitch Pileggi. Yeah. So uh, Murphy Murphy's fine in this. You know, he's uh, in, you know far younger than uh, many of these other uh, film appearances uh, that we noted. But um, yeah, he's uh, he's a he's a numbers guy. He he plays. Um, <laughs> Uh, what he's a game theorist and yeah, mathematician he's a mathematician yeah doesn't really know or care anything about ants uh but is ultimately like the younger more compassionate of the duo here right i think they do a kind of strange thing where they have two scientists one is a like entomologist who cares deeply about ants and the other is a mathematician who doesn't care about ants and so you would think that the one who goes Ahab and just wants to destroy all of ants would be the mathematician, but no, they switch them. It, it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, but if um, if if the other guy, if Davenport's Hubs is Captain Ahab, then Murphy's Lesko is Ishmael. Yeah, he's kind of along for the ride. Yeah, he yeah. he decided. Well, in fact, he even says he was like, I, I just wanted to get away for a few weeks. That's why I took this job. So it's like he wanted to go see the watery part of the world. Mm-hmm. All right, we um, we ultimately have a very small human cast in this. This is one thing I noticed before we even watched the film. It has like, well, like five or six people are credited, uh, and the the two we covered have most of the the screen time. But there is another. There's a third human character that plays a, um, I don't want to. I guess a crucial role. It's not a great part because she's kind of a damsel in distress for a lot of it. But we have uh, the the actor Lynn Frederick playing Kendra Eldridge. Um, now, Frederick lived 1954 through 1994, British actor of the 70s who um, had, a, had a really promising career going, died too young, known for roles in The Amazing Mr. Blunden, Nicholas in Alexandria, and The Prisoner of Zenda. Uh, she was also in the 1972 horror film Vampire Circus. I didn't realize she was in Nicholas in Alexandria. I got to look that up and see mm-hmm. what she was in. That's a movie that's- where I also very much appreciate the textures. There's some really good sets and locations in it. Yeah, I've heard you, you talk about that one before. Basically, she is, a, as we'll discuss, like she's a, 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 an innocent human who gets uh, swept into this ant uh, takeover uh, drama. Uh, she has a, has a couple of uh, grandparents that are, are doomed. 
uh, and we'll discuss their doom in a bit. Uh, but uh, the the actor who plays Grandma, Grandma Eldridge in this, is the actor Helen Horton, who lived 1923 through 2007. Uh, she pops up in Superman 3, did a lot of TV work, but she's also the voice of Mother from 1979's Alien. Now, this is funny because I didn't remember Mother in Alien. Have, this is the name of the computer. It's the mm-hmm. you know, computer that controls everything. I only remember Dallas communicating with Mother through like a command line on a computer screen, though maybe Mother has a voice when there's like a self-destruct countdown on the ship or something. I think that is it, yeah. Okay. Uh, Where Mother is given the countdown and and, uh, Ripley is trying to get out of there with the cat. Right, right. I don't know. Maybe next time I watch Alien, I'll got to keep. Uh, I'll keep an uh, an ear out for uh, Helen Horton, who in this movie just plays like a suspicious grandma. It's it's Mildred is just not very happy about the government telling them that they need to flee the Ant Menace. All right, let's talk a little bit about the, the music on this one. Uh, normally, we highlight uh, a single individual that's involved, but this time, like three different individuals at least are worth noting here. So first of all, uh, Brian Gascoigne. Is, uh, is credited with the music. Born 1943, British composer and musician who also scored The Emerald Forest in 1985 and worked in the music department on such films as Godsford Park. He did piano on that. Uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. He did keyboards and synthesizer on that. Uh, he did synthesizers on uh, Cherry 2000. And uh, most exciting of all, at least to me, uh, he was also in the music department on Jim Henson's 1982 masterpiece, The Dark Crystal. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that film, and I think the music for that for that movie is tremendous. Mm-hmm. Um, the score was composed by Trevor Jones, but Gascoigne provided, quote, synthesized electronic sounds. Mm. So I'm guessing it was like, okay, the crystal's doing something. We need to get Gascoigne in here to start uh, right. <laughs> start tickling the synth. What is the sound of draining essence? Now, we also have uh, Desmond Briscoe on this, who lived 1925 through 2006. He's credited as composer, additional electronic music, a British composer and sound engineer, co-founder of the original BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Now, this is the group that included pioneering electronic artist uh, Delia Derbyshire, who lived 1937 through 2001. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, she's the one who provided the electronic arrangement of the original Doctor Who theme and uh, and ultimately influenced many future big names in electronic music. So I've said on the show before that I, I am not a, a Whovian. I don't really know much Doctor Who. But when I did very first try to watch a few episodes, the main thing that actually hooked me about it more than the show itself was the theme song. I, I got briefly obsessed with the theme music and with the different versions of it from over the years and ended up going on this deep dive about Delia Derbyshire and like how she created it with – I guess it was analog tape effects at the time, right? Mm-hmm. It was before, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean this was the early know, days. Yeah, digital manipulation. Um and yeah, what a great piece of classic electronic and, and tape effects music. And then one uh, one more individual I want to mention in reference to Phase 4, and that is uh, Stomu Yamashita, uh, who uh, is credited with composer, montage music. Born 1947, Japanese percussionist, keyboardist, and composer, known for helping to fuse traditional Japanese percussive music with Western prog rock in the 60s and 70s. He was a member of the supergroup Go, alongside such names as Steve Winwood, mm-hmm. uh, best known for the track Higher Love, but also German electronic music pioneer Klaus Schulz, of whom I'm a, I'm a big fan. Oh, I don't know if I know him. 
Oh, you you would you would dig it. I'll, I'll have to send you some stuff after we record because uh, okay. yeah, Klaus Schulz put out some 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 wonderful material. Now Yamashita on on his own scored the nineteen seventy six David Bowie sci fi film The Man Who Fell to Earth, as well as nineteen eighty two's Tempest, starring John Cassavetes, Susan Sarandon, Molly Ringwald, and Raul Julia. Now, this is a movie where I, I don't think there was ever like a melody from the score that stuck with me, but in general, I loved the sound design and the uh, the, the the ambient electronic music. Yeah, this is a film that's very concerned with computers and computer technology, uh, and and all that computer technology is also seen as a and, and very much plot wise as a way of translating the way of the ant in a way mm-hmm. that ants and humans might communicate. So it uses electronic music well in providing a sense of the cosmic and otherworldly, uh, and even like the sense of the cosmic and otherworldly to be found in the the, the mind of of the ants. Uh, there are a few places where it gets a little uh, melodic and traditional, almost as if somebody like the producers were like, hey, what are you doing here, Saul? We, this is a human movie for humans, and this scene has humans doing human stuff. Let's get some human music in here. Uh, but but otherwise, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty great. Lots of electronic touches. There are stretches without music, but those tend to revolve around one of two uh, soundscapes I found, either windswept deserts or the insides of their spaceship-like research station that also has a supercomputer there. So lots of, lots of computer noises. Oh, and fair warning, I wouldn't normally mention this, but there was one part, of, like if you're listening with like loud headphones or something, there is one segment of this movie where for like several minutes they start making this excruciating high-pitched noise, yeah. which I imagine, do you know the part I'm talking about, Rob? Yes, yeah, absolutely, because yeah. I was... I was watching it with the sound up, part of it with the sound up, while my wife was trying to work in <laughs> like the next room. Yeah. And uh, so I was a little, I was like, oh, this is getting a bit much. I'm going to have to plug in the headphones for this. Yeah. So if you go watch it yourself, just be wary. Mm-hmm. Keep, keep your finger on the volume button. All right. Well, let's get into the, the plot of this baby. Uh, we, we have, to, have to, to mention this is a movie that is not afraid to narrate. No, no. Yeah. Th- there is plenty of voiceover narrate. Narr- in fact, I wonder if there is. Just if you go by word count, I wonder if there's more voiceover narration than there is dialogue. Probably so. I, I you know, I have to be one. Anytime I, I think about narration in a film, I always go back to like various threads I would read and arguments about Ridley Scott's Blade Runner, where people are like, uh, "Get that narration out of here! Oh, narration in a film, by uh-huh. God!" I, and I was always like, "I, I kind of like the narration. What's what's wrong with the, the narration? Uh, give me I, some I narration." Yeah, I don't have strong general feelings about it one way or another. You know, sometimes it's yeah. good, sometimes it's not. Yeah, it can be good, it can be bad. Um, it can also help along a movie that maybe, um, you know, it just needs a little narration help in, in letting you know what's supposed to be going on. Well, yeah, and also in this movie, without the narration, you, you would either need to make it way more dialogue heavy and add totally different types of characters and stuff, or you just got to have the narration in there. Um, because they begin by explaining the whole situation. The opening narration includes shots of space uh, where you're seeing these planets and stars apparently align. They're very vague about what's going on, but in a way that I found pleasing rather than frustrating. I I think some people might be more frustrated, but they they don't say exactly what's going on, but there's some kind of weird astronomical event. And mm-hmm. this this astronomical event gets scientists and mystics alike very excited, but nobody knows what it means. Except you are told that there's a researcher named Ernest Hubbs who documents that right after this 
astronomical event, ants around the world start doing things that ants don't do. It says that they're meeting, communicating, making decisions. Uh, Again, being very vague about what that means, but I guess we'll find out more as the movie goes on. Uh, And while the narration explains the situation, we get to watch this beautiful ballet of ants running around in tunnels, fighting, reproducing, doing all kinds of things. And I want to say also that the effects and photography in this opening ant ballet are just wonderful. There were plenty of parts where I couldn't tell if I was looking at real ants or at special effects. Even some of the close-ups that were obviously puppets look very good. I love the the textured surfaces, the exoskeleton, the eye, the sand grains, the antennae. Uh, At this point, I immediately felt like we were in very good hands as far as the look and design of the movie was going. Absolutely. Uh, But then we get tons more voiceover narration. Uh, I started transcribing it, but I think later on I realized, like, I I don't need to read all of this verbatim. But essentially there is a different voice coming in that we will later find out is Dr. Hubbs. And he's dictating some kind of government memorandum. He's issuing a a memo to, like, the biocontrol division of some kind of agency. And he is explaining alarming reports uh, of something going on in the American Southwest. He says that the traditional antagonisms between different ant species have come to a dramatic halt. And, uh, And he says at the same time, there has been an apparent disappearance of those insects which prey on ants, specifically mantises, beetles, millipedes, and spiders. And he says that if this goes on, we're going to see some real booms in ant populations. And then uh, meanwhile, we we see beautiful time-lapse footage of ants swarming over and devouring a big tarantula. And he ends up offering in this memo a a proposal. He's like, look, what we've got to do is a full-scale attack on on the ants. Otherwise, they're going to represent a, a threat to all other life forms in the area. So we need to build an experiment station out near Ant Ground Zero, and he says he he needs more personnel. He needs another researcher to join him. So the leader here is going to be this this ant researcher, Hubs, but he also requests somebody named J.R. Lesko, who is a a senior scientist who is a, a qualified information specialist with cryptological background. Yeah, and so we're already getting getting the idea that there's going to be some sort of uh, communication aspect to this this study, this uh, this project, which which again seems to be about uh, understanding and combating ants who have yeah. declared like a, a an ant wide uh, peace treaty and are turning their attention to other things in a way that makes us feel threatened. Uh, and it seems like Hubs has just been granted uh, an enormous budget for this project, but also, as we'll find out, a very limited window in which to operate. Yeah, it's funny. So they build him a a geodesic dome out in the desert that's full of the world's most sophisticated technology and it's got supercomputers and stuff in it in 1974. Mm-hmm. But he's also constantly getting calls on the radio that are like, uh, that are like, can you hurry this up? We, you know, we don't have <laughs> enough budget to fund you for two more days. Yeah, well, maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe it's on hubs. Like, maybe you should have scaled down on the facilities here. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe you didn't need this, uh, this, what, what seems like a spaceship, you know? It feels right. like it should be on the surface of Mars, uh, not in the, what, the Arizona desert. We've only got these supercomputers rented through Friday. After that, there are late <laughs> fees. Well, anyway, so that's the, the setup. And then we get to the actual narrative part of the film. So we see a car blasting through the desert, kicking up clouds of dust from the road. 
and it goes past signs for a golf course and a country club, and then a sign that says, Welcome to Paradise City. But it's one of those comedic, uh, ironic reveals, because when you peel back from all those signs, it, it's just a cursed land of emptiness and dust. Yeah. I think they refer to it as uh, another desert development that didn't develop. Right. It's uh, some half-built houses and a grid of dirt roads. But when they go down to the end of the longest of the dirt roads, we see something very strange. And in the middle of the nothingness, there is this grove of seven pillars, just pillars reaching straight up out of the out of the ground like uh, like greek columns and so they drive up and park the car and out hop a couple of guys these would be our protagonists again this is uh, nigel davenport as dr hubs and michael murphy is dr lesko and i immediately noticed some very interesting color coding this was another thing that tipped me off early how sort of visual and design oriented this movie would be because uh, rob i don't know if you noticed the same thing but the color coding of the wardrobes of the two actors is so starkly different. Lesko is just blue, blue, blue. He's blue jeans, mm-hmm. blue shirt, blue jacket, and blue hat. Whereas Hubs is all these uh, earth tones and earth energy. So he's wearing khaki pants, a brown jacket. He's got long hair and a dark beard, and he's carrying a staff or stick of some kind. Yeah. So I was immediately wondering, what's going on with this? It, again, seems like a graphic designer's touch, but is Lesko supposed to be the sky while Hubs is the earth? Or is it a, a blue wizard and Radagast the brown thing? I, I didn't really notice this as much when I was watching it, but um, uh, I guess I was focusing more on the the environment they're in, which is pretty brilliant, because this is the place where where human organization and human development has, has uh, you know, the wave has crashed and fallen back. Right. Uh, it is where human development has has failed, uh, but it is where this new sign of of ant civilization uh, has has sprung forth. Right, and so they walk around in these half built or abandoned houses, and Lesko asks if there are any dead bodies out here, and Nigel uh, Nigel Davenport says no. Uh, the people the population moved itself out days ago, um, and then they start talking about their background, and we learn that Lesko has achieved scientific fame by applying game theory to the language of killer whales. And Hubs is very intrigued by this. He wants to know, did you ever actually make contact with a whale? And Lesko says, only with the emotionally disturbed ones. And uh, and uh, Hubs is like, well, how did you determine that? And, and Lesko says, well, we talked. I think he's supposed to be kidding, but they never yeah, clarify uh, this. Yeah, I think it's math nerdery. Uh, and, and also, uh, this is the point in the movie where if you don't know anything about it, you can easily imagine we're going in the direction of, of uh, like a computer literally translates what ants are saying in some sort of a computer voice. In the same way that you have films where this is happening with dolphins and other creatures. Yeah. But, and, and this is a film that is about communication or attempts at communication between two drastically different intelligent species. Uh, but it, it does so in very clever ways that I think really like takes the question seriously and takes the, uh, you know, the gulf between different, uh, cons- you know, possibly evolved intelligences, uh, the, the gulf between them and how difficult it would be uh, like for one side to even realize the other side is intelligent. Yeah. That's something I really liked about this movie is that it, it takes the confusing nature of cross-species communication seriously. Like, mm-hmm. uh, 
There's a great scene I want to talk about later that involves uh, communication between humans and ants and how it's hard to understand what it means. Uh, but anyway, here at the beginning, it's clear that Lesko does not see himself as a biologist or a zoologist or somebody who, who cares about or understands animals. He says, I'm strictly a pencil and paper guy. The two scientists approach the seven pillars. And uh, Rob, how would you describe these pillars? I, the, I, I love this feature of the movie. And they won't be the last pillars we see. They, uh, yeah, they're pretty great because they're they're monolithic, but they don't, you know, they're not... Um, they're not as perfect as, say, the monolith from 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm -hmm. though you, know, you, you can't help but imagine some of that DNA is present there. I mean, certainly the, uh, this is a film that, um, that exists, uh, you know, in the, uh, ultimately in the very long shadow of 2001, A Space Odyssey. But, uh, but these feel, they feel very organic. They're reminiscent of termite mound cooling towers. Mm -hmm. um, they have these little uh, crevices towards the top that feel like they're intended to do something with the air. Um, it's the kind of thing that you'd think an ant researcher would be very interested in, but they, they ultimately don't seem to investigate that much. But yeah, they feel like they are at this place where, where organic animal construction and human construction meets, and the distinction becomes blurred. Right. I mean, it's the angles, I think, that make them unusual. I mean, if they were just sort of rounded pillars, you might think, well, th those are very tall and strange, but they're more like termite mounds. It's the fact that they have like a, a diamond shape with sharp angles that makes it look like, oh, this shouldn't be something ants are doing. Yeah, it, it looks very alien and cool. Oh, and of course, we see in close-ups that ants are looking out at the scientists through crevices in the, in the pillars. Mm-hmm. So anyway, after this, they go to a farm where they find some dead sheep, and there are shots of them walking through the tall grass that's rippling in the wind. It's very elegant. But they eventually come across a crop circle with geometric designs inside it. There's like a diamond in the middle and then a ring around the outside. Um, and, uh, and Hubs is talking about how there are some ant species that will attack anything that threatens their food supply. Yeah, And so what do these patterns in the field represent? Well, it's not clear yet. And in fact, I don't know if it ever becomes clear. It's just like the ants make this pattern in the field for some reason. And, and I don't I even don't, think our characters perhaps realize that pattern is there. This is uh, like the privileged information uh, that, is, uh, the, that is for the viewer. Uh, yeah. the, there's no indication that they notice that they are standing in the midst of, a, of this strange crop circle. Right. And I will say, by the way, I don't know if this is true, but I just read briefly on the internet some people alleging that this film may have inspired some of the people who made crop circles and then said that they were made by aliens because apparently this uh, this predates some of the, the big crop circle craze. Huh. I, I didn't realize that. I, I did read somewhere that this is this is arguably the first appearance of a crop circle in a film, uh, but but that would be interesting. And certainly it would match up with what we know about uh, about crop circles and their their very human origin. Yeah, apparently there are a few reports of things sort of like crop circles that date to before the 70s, but I think the the real uh, crop circle craze started sometime in the mid to late 70s. That's when mm -hmm. it like really took off. Well, anyway, so they're going around this farm that still does have a few people in it, and uh, we, we meet a farmer named Mr. Eldridge. I don't think we ever learned his first name, and he's explaining a, a fuel ditch trap for ants. Like, they dig a big moat around the farmhouse and fill it with gasoline or something. 
Yeah, it's a, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a crazy sounding plan. They're like, "Yep, if the ants get across the the water, well, we'll just we'll just light this trough of of fuel on fire, and then uh, that'll do them. And then we'll just keep this uh, trough of fire going uh, for the rest of our lives." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the family is Mister Eldridge, and then his wife Mildred Eldridge, who uh, is skeptical of the scientists who have arrived to tell them they're in danger. Uh, and their granddaughter, Kendra Eldridge, who she, she kind of rides horses and waves. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's another guy named Cleet, who I guess is their their aunt burning guy. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you got an aunt burning guy? Yeah, his name's Cleet. Yeah, I'll put you in touch. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but Kendra is the main character. Again, this is a character played by Lynn Frederick. Um, spoiler, she's the only one that is going to survive for any length of time here. Right. But anyway, Hubs tells them they're going to have to evacuate in a few days for their own protection. Mildred is not happy about that. But strangely, Mr. Eldridge is like, hey, listen to them. It's for our own protection. Yeah. Uh, So that was phase one. And then we get a transition where we see phase two. It's not clear what has changed, but that's what we get. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about this film. Like the title, phase four, is not referring to, uh, to most of the film. Like phase four is the place we are going to arrive at at the end of the film. Right. So the next thing we do is we go to the two scientists in their self-contained research facility, which is a geodesic dome with an antenna tower next to it. And Mm -hmm. then um, a bunch of little nodes coming off of it, like these pipes leading out to these little spheres planted out in the perimeter around the geodesic dome, which we later learn are for spraying beautiful poison. Yes. Of which they have, do they have just two colors or are there three colors? Um, there are only two we learn about. There, yeah, there may be others. There's yellow and there's blue. So the scientists are inside doing experiments. There are lots of machines that make beeping and whirring noises, uh, sometimes a big air pressure hiss as well. And mm-hmm. this might sound kind of hard to believe, but I be- I think there are several just extremely pleasurable shots of Michael Murphy just flipping lots of switches. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're not exactly sure what he's he's doing here necessarily, but you have, you have that nice computer electronic ambiance going on in the background, and mm-hmm. you know, he's very chill about this. It's, yeah, it's a nice vibe. Now, uh, I I love 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 this uh, research facility they have here. I, I in general, I love it when researchers and or adventurers in a film are just drastically technologically overprepared for a mission, uh-huh. uh, overfunded as well, perhaps here. Um, I, I love it when it's as simple as an Antarctic research facility or an underwater station that just happens to have a flamethrower on hand. Uh, right. I also love it when it's an ape mission into the jungle and you bring along tripod gun drones and your own talking techno ape. Um, oh, that's Congo. <laughs> yeah, Congo. Uh, and, I, and, and I guess that's the thing, too. It's like, you know, it's, it's very Crichton-y. And this film does feel very Crichton-y in many respects. Yes. Um, well, yeah. I, I don't want to say it's ripping it off, but I say I think there are some very clear parallels between this movie and the Andromeda Strain, Michael Crichton's first big novel, mm. which is also about uh, a group of scientists that go into a self-contained facility in the American Southwest in order to fight some kind of novel biological menace that has been caused by an astronomical event. So I wouldn't be surprised if there's a little bit of inspiration going on there. Yeah. Well, that would make sense. Yeah. But, but again, what we have here is a – weird station that seems like it's built for the surface of Mars, full of supercomputers, NASA-style living conditions, you know, like this wonderful scene where they're they're picking out what kind of food they're going to eat or they're getting some coffee or something. And it's, yeah, it's like a spaceship, but not only a spaceship, a spaceship that has been engineered 
to stand as like the last redoubt against the ant onslaught. Uh, yeah. And yet it is not 100% ant-proof, um, no. though there seem to be measures taken to try and make it so. Like there's essentially like a decontamination airlock that you have to get nude for. Um, <laughs> there are the, the poison sprayers with two different flavors that we mentioned. Uh, it's, right. it's great. And uh, there's some drama inside about uh, cost overruns that we alluded to earlier. Like there's a guy on the radio who's calling hubs and being like, hey, y- you got to speed up your research. We're running out of money here. Uh, and I guess and the- this is this is important, too, to know. Like one of the, the things that they keep driving home, I think, with the, the human interaction is that ants have it all together. Not only yeah. – and previously they did, you know, species to species or colony to colony in some cases and super colonies. But now all ant kind is one – is, is on the same page. They are working right. in unison. Meanwhile, none of our humans can get along completely. They all have different ideas and different views. Uh, you know, our two researchers are arguing with each other. They're having conflicts ultimately with the other human character and with these people on the phone. Right. But the, uh, the way they come up with to speed up the research, by the way, is hilarious because what it means is okay, we got to get the ants to do something. So Hubs is like, well, I guess I'll go blow up these towers in the desert with a handheld grenade launcher. Yes. Um, and, and you know, we have to stress that we're talking, again, like a, a handheld grenade launcher like the one Arnold has in Terminator 2. Uh-huh. He just casually uses it to blow up all the ant monoliths uh, that are there, uh, which... Um, which which is interesting too because later on like the, the voice on the phone is like you should try destroying one of the monoliths to see if you can uh, provoke a reaction <laughs> he doesn't he doesn't mess around he just blows them all up yeah um well i think he's already done it when they suggest that yeah he's like oh i'll think about it okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i just I, again it comes back to the fact that this grenade launcher, I'm I'm assuming or hoping it is slash was illegal to actually own one of these that <laughs> fires actual grenades and not flares. Um, so I, I guess it is part of the specialized kit that he he requested and was approved for use uh-huh. in this research experiment. So that means it has it's like its own shelf in the in the research station, or maybe it's in a it's it's mounted behind glass with a sign that reads "Break if study deadline is rapidly approaching." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but we just see him out there in the middle of the road. He's standing there like uh, like Mel Gibson in the Road Warrior poster with the thing yeah. when he's just shooting these ant colonies. Yeah, he's got a whole ammunition box of grenades, and he's just letting it, letting the, the monoliths have it. Um, but anyway, so from this, uh, they do learn some things because Lesko figures out that the ants are communicating by sound. They, he's mm-hmm. like, they're talking to each other, and he starts recording the sounds they're making and trying to decode it and understand their language. And anyway, uh, so we knew this was coming later that night. Uh, the ants apparently attack the Eldritch farm. They're the only uh, other humans left around and the ants set upon them. So they start attacking the horse out in the field and then the fire trap is triggered and then the mm-hmm. ants swarm the house and then the humans have to flee in a truck and uh, Mildred is all like, they warned us. And then I think ants attack the truck and attack inside the truck. Yep, yep. They're, they're, they're suddenly inside. They're crawling in Grandpa's hair. There's a, 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 it results in a wreck. And so they're fleeing on foot at this point towards the research facility um, and towards the buildings, the, you know, the remains of this housing development that are still there. Right. So they, they basically get to the research facility, but they're attacked by ants when they get out of the truck. 
Right. Uh, and at the same time, Lesko is showing off his work to Hubs on uh, decoding the ant language. And while he's doing that, ants cut the power to the facility. They cut the right. power, man. How can they cut the power? They're animals, but they do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the uh, so Hubs responds by spraying the ants outside with this gorgeous yellow poison. Uh, it's like coming out of these spheres. It's weird to say it's beautiful, but it is beautiful. And and they call the poison yellow. It's just called the yellow. Yes. And I think, again, it makes a lot of sense for this movie to call its poison, to not have a chemical name, to not let it have a brand name. It's just the yellow. And th- that that indicates like that, that color and lines reign supreme in, in the world of phase four. Yeah, absolutely. But the poison defense here, it, it seems to work. In fact, it, it works a little too well. Right. So it kills most of the ants, though some ants get away. And then meanwhile, they come out the next morning. And uh, so the two scientists are in these environment suits. Uh, They look like they're like, you know, like EVA suits in space. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they go out to see that their spraying of the poison has killed the the people who came from the farm. It killed Mildred and Mr. Eldridge and and Cleet. Yeah, it kills grandma and grandpa. Um, But... uh... But as it turns out, as we find out in a bit, uh, Kendra is fine. She was actually in the basement of one of those houses. Right. She hid in the cellar. Uh, oh, but also there, you start getting some hints that things are going in a weird direction because uh, Hubs is trying to like figure out what the ants did to sabotage their generator in the truck. And meanwhile, Les goes like, there are dead people. And then Hubs is like, oh, yes, a tragedy. <laughs> um, uh, but he uh, – <laughs> He, so he, you're starting to get the sense that maybe he's a little disconnected from uh, from, from the value of human life. Uh, but anyway, he says, okay, so I think the yellow should hold its potency for three or four days, which was a, a, a great phrase, I thought. Oh, but then there's something very weird. So when they find Cleet, remember the, the ant burning guy? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they find Cleet and his hand is tightly closed and they pry it open with a metal rod and it has three symmetrical holes in the palm of the hand like dots and then we see ants crawling out of the holes yeah this is um this really gave me the willies <laughs> watching this this yeah. is the how you know the makeup effects that they did on this um are, are really convincing they really feel like they are holes in a hand and we get close-ups and usually like a, an extreme close-up on an effect like this will reveal uh, the flaws in the design. But this one just makes me feel more and more like I'm looking at three holes in a human hand with uh, yeah. an ant crawling out of it. So, yeah, um, yeah if you have, the, if you have the, the fear of holes, uh, I would maybe make sure you're ready to fast forward through this scene. Uh, there's also an earlier scene where they're looking at a hole in like the neck of a sheep, sheep that also yeah. gave me the willies. Agreed. And again, the effects look great. Um, oh, but also, like we said, they discover that Kendra survived the storm. Uh, so she takes refuge with the scientists inside the geodesic dome. Uh, and we get a, a scene where Hubs is explaining the beauty of ants. He's like so defenseless in the individual, so powerful in the mass. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here we start getting some real conflict between Lesko and Hubs because Lesko, quite sensibly, wants to call a helicopter to evacuate Kendra to safety while they keep fighting the ant menace. And Hubs is against it. He's like, I think the bureaucrats would be rather unhappy to learn of our casualties. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, to Telesco's point, uh, two people have died. Three people have died. Yes. The two of them were killed seemingly by the experiment itself. Uh-huh. And now they have uh, this, uh, this poor woman 
uh, who needs to, to, to be taken to safety. Uh, yeah, but Hubs is like, uh, I don't know if we want to really mess up the experiment for this. We don't want to actually. Exactly, yeah. So Hubs is, he's trending into mad scientist mode. Mm-hmm. And it helps that while saying all this stuff, he's in the middle of staging an experiment where he puts ants in a maze with a bunch of praying mantises. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually he's, Lesko gets him to promise that he will call the helicopter to come collect Kendra, but he is obviously lying. Yeah, there is there there are no helicopters in this movie. They <laughs> never show right. up. Uh, but uh, oh, then uh, at some point, Kendra gets mad while staring at an ant. She's like, "Ants killed my horse!" And she smashes a bunch of the glass lab equipment, which yep. sends ants everywhere inside the lab. Hubs gets bitten by one of them before he can seal the room and gas it to kill all the ants. Yeah, th- this is another one of those scenes that really feels like it was it was written and filmed by ants, like displaying yes. <laughs> you know, a, <laughs> okay. a loose understanding of how humans work. A, an accurate. Yes, the uh, human motivations are. Work. Yeah, <laughs> the ants are doing most of the acting here. Yes. But from there, we move on to, to some ant business. Uh, it's back to, to, like, basically, you know, this is a game. It is one side moves and then the other side moves, and now it is the ant's turn. Right. So what the ants do, I, I'm not sure I understood this scene right. Maybe you can correct me if you got a different impression. What it looks like is happening is that there's this sequence of ants repeatedly trying to move a wad of some yellow white material through the tunnels. And I think the wad is supposed to be the poison, the yellow. Yeah. Yeah, and like one will die or become exhausted, probably die, pass it on to another ant, uh, and that ant will keep journeying with the poison. Right, so we see this handoff. It's a relay of the the poison kills one ant, the next ant takes it uh, along on the journey, eventually bringing it, I think, to the queen. Mm -hmm. And then the queen like sniffs the poison and breathes heavily while examining it. And then starts to give birth to a yellow-green object, like extrudes, it seems to be, an egg that has been, uh, like, infused with the spirit of the yellow. Yeah, and this is one of those scenes where, yeah, if you're going to come in and you're going to be very uh, critical about everything, you're going to say, is this something ants can do? Is this, what's what's going on here? And I think, you know, this is a movie that is that largely takes the viewpoint of, like, look, if I explained it to you, I'd probably get it really wrong and it would feel kind of dumb. But if you're just viewing it, if you just kind of like breathe it in, take in the colors, um, then everything's going to be fine. Right. So from here, the arms race continues. The ants, after this, build a series of geometric pillars right outside the geodesic dome. And uh, the scientists are like, what are they doing? What is this? And we discovered that they have built solar reflectors to direct beams of sunlight at the dome. And this immediately starts bringing up the temperature in the lab above the level where the computers can tolerate it. Yeah, I I love it. They answered it all in one night. Uh, Reflective monoliths to fry the humans and perhaps more importantly, to overheat their their delicate thinking machine. Um, It's the sort of heat-based warfare that is actually used uh, uh, specifically, to my knowledge, by bees. Uh, Now, bees do not construct monoliths to fry supercomputers, but they will swarm around an invader and overheat it with their own own body heat. So um, Mm. it's... That alone makes this feel like a, um, in, in, I mean, a speculative uh, leap, certainly, uh, but, but kind of a believable tactic that you might conceivably have some sort of advanced ants use, right? 
Right. So that's their new offense, but also the ants have a new defense because the researchers see that like the ants have started a new generation of workers that are yellow, like the poison. And Hub mm-hmm. says, we challenge them with yellow chemistry. They respond with yellow creatures. Uh, so it seems, you know, the ants are adapting to the, the poisons they're using. And Hub says, we can try the blue, of course, but they'd only adapt again. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, of course, mad scientist progression, Hub starts talking, uh, monologuing about how he believes the ants are a new type of intelligence, one that can be harnessed and educated by humans. Uh, oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, I didn't call the helicopter. Uh, so <laughs> so Lesko tries to call. But when he goes to flip the switch on the radio, it shorts out and you know, sparks go all over the place. And we find that the circuit board, oh, no, is covered in ants that have sacrificed their bodies to short out the electronics. Yeah, they've managed to get in here. Yeah, they've penetrated the perimeter. They're sabotaging equipment. And then there's this ensuing battle. They're they're fighting a war over, like, the air conditioning. The ants are trying to burn out the lab computers, and the humans are trying to keep the environment cool. And so there's this cool, great stuff, like shots of an ant crawling all the way down a spiraling copper coil inside the air conditioning units. And uh, and Lesko, on the other hand, tries to create a sonic weapon to broadcast at the ants, except it is excruciating to humans and cracks all the glass. Uh, and the sonic weapon works. It does shatter the and crumble the pillars. But then we also get ants attacking, uh, continuing to attack the electric wires inside the facility. And uh, there's a great scene of ant revenge. I mean, this movie really does kind of have ant characters like you, you mm-hmm. get to see them fighting their side of the battle, too. Because like some of the mantises from the experiments have gotten loose and they're trying to prey on ants as they're doing their business. But but there's some ant revenge when an ant grabs a praying mantis's leg and pulls it into a circuit board and it is fried. Yeah, I mean, how often do you see a bug movie with, with two bugs battling it out? Um, <laughs> like actual bugs uh, in miniature uh, in this artificial set. Like this must have been uh, quite a challenge to put together. Now, Hubs is not doing well because of the venomous ant bite on his hand, and we get some mm-hmm. narration where he says, I am taking one of my less painful moments to record these notes. Our equipment only functions for a few hours at night. Lesko believes we're being allowed this time for some purpose, a hypothesis I do not share. If this were so, it would, it would raise questions I had not considered. Mm. And here's a really cool part where Lesko tries sending a message to the ants. It's an audio message, but he uses it to encode because he figures out that the ants have a code that they communicate in about directions. And so he can send them images. And so he sends them an image of a square reasoning. I didn't fully make the connection here, but I think it's something about geometry. He says like, Mathematics is the universal language among intelligent creatures. If there's intelligence there, I want it to know there's intelligence here. So he sends it a square. Yeah, yeah, I love this because you know it's getting to the. Uh, I, I, I buy into this idea. You know, that mathematics uh, is going to be the universal language that, on some level, the ants understand it. We understand it, and and I really love this this idea that like the ants might not realize that we are intelligent too. Right. You know. Uh, they could just be blind to this fact. And how do we possibly communicate with ants and let them know this? But things get progressively worse inside the dome. Uh, there's a creepy scene where, where Kendra is menaced by ants while she's sleeping. She she sees an, uh, uh, an ant on her pillow and says, go away, please go away. And then Hubs, uh, possibly because of his venomous ant bite or, or possibly from the interaction of that bite with his, his pre-existing mad scientist disease – 
He starts going nuts and smashing things, trying to kill ants he sees or believes he sees. Um, mm-hmm. He gets a really bad case of – I attached a picture for you to look at here, Rob, <laughs> kind of mad scientist eyes. Like he yep. looks like he's about to start talking about how he should have won a Nobel Prize, but it, the narrow-minded academic stole it from him. Mm-hmm. And he, he thinks he kills an ant, but I can't tell if he actually did. Does He just sort of pulls back a bloody hand. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think there was some shattered glass on the floor, and he managed yeah. to just cut his hand up. We don't see an ant. Hey, then is phase three, buddy. Yep, yep. We're, we're, we're getting down to the, the, the final. The, this is the penultimate phase. Yeah. Uh, phase four is going to really blow you away, and this is, this is where we're getting there. So we see Lesko and Hubs in their bunks, and Lesko's wondering, why don't they kill us? You know, they roast us in here all day, and then they dare us to come out at night. Why, why, do, they, why do they play these games? Why don't they just kill us now? What do they want? And Hubs talks about ant specialization. He says, you know, ants are organized into roles by the queen in order to keep her alive. He says, she's at the center. It is she who speaks. If she were to die... And then they they hash out their different views about what should be done next, how to proceed. Hubs thinks, uh, let's locate the queen and kill her. That's their only way. And Lesko says, "Uh uh-uh, ants have all the cards. The only way to survive is to convince them that we're worth keeping alive. Mm. It is interesting here where, um, uh, you know, Hubs ends up focusing more and more on the queen. And so he ends up focusing more and more on the individual as opposed to the group. Whereas yeah. I think Lesko is still seems to be more of the mindset. It's like it it is a it's the mass we need to communicate with. Uh, so I feel like the the focus on the individual is perhaps just more a part of Hubs's madness. Right. And oh, and here's a scene I did love. So the ants want to communicate. That uh, Lesko transmitted the square to them earlier. They transmit back. They make vocalizations that the computer can interpret. And it prints what they say, and what they say is, in response to the square, they say a circle with a dot in it. What does that mm. mean? Yeah, they start saying, well, maybe that's here. It's a map. They want something in here. We should look around and see if we find it. And it's pretty great, because Kendra is, is suddenly like, oh, they must mean me, because I, I, I smashed an ant in the, 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 the research room earlier. Yeah. I will go out into the wild without my shoes on. Right. She's like, so all she- ready to sacrifice herself for these scientists. Yes. She's like, the ants want me, and if I go I'd commit ant suicide, then the scientists will get away all right. <laughs> Rob, there's a picture I included here, not because anything interesting is going on. It's just Hub sitting at a, a desk, but I included it because I don't know what these boxes are, but it looks like he has several sticks of butter sitting on the console <laughs> in front of him. It does look like it. There's also a scene where, because he, basically he's convinced, I got to go out and kill the queen. They uh-huh. eye what they where they think the mound is, where the queen can be found. And he yeah. goes to get the grenade launcher out again, but there are no grenades left because he used all of them to blow up the monoliths earlier. Why? Why, buddy? <laughs> so he's going he's gonna to have to do it the old-fashioned way. He's going to have to take a, a canister of the blue out there and uh, poison his way across the, the ant-dominated wasteland and make his way to uh, the queen and try and poison her there. That seems to be the plan. But Hubs goes outside to attack the queen. And uh, so Kendra has already gone out to sacrifice herself to the ants. And we see her just sort of disappear. Hubs goes out and falls into a pit trap. The ants construct a pit trap. This is amazing connection to the core episode we did. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about pit traps and why we don't see, like studies uh, about why we don't see more pit traps in nature. You know, how about how ultimately a pit trap is is easy 
to build. It doesn't require that much energy. And we talk about ants potentially building traps as well. And so because of all that, and then having sort of developed a vague interest in this film based on our, our previous episode about ants potentially building traps, to suddenly be hit with this scene, uh, I, I think I exclaimed aloud. It was just, it's, it's such a shock. It's a great sequence. Yeah, it is. And of course, he's immediately swarmed by ants. He gets land piranhaed by by the ants. Yeah. Um, and so now it's just down to Lesko is Michael Murphy. He's like, I got to do it. So he, he, he delivers this monologue that's full of regret. He says like, I would still like to believe that if we'd had more time, we could have come to an understanding, some rational accommodation of interests, some agreement, but that's not the way it's going to be. So he suits up, just starts spraying the blue everywhere. Uh, and finally he's come around to hub's position. He's like, we only have one chance. We got to assassinate the queen. So he goes up to the mound where the queen is supposed to be, but then I guess there's sort of another pit trap because he's as he's trying to go in, he ends up sliding and he falls in. Oh, but, but, but he, oh, we should mention on the way to the mound, like he's having all sorts of mishaps. He starts out in his full protective suit, but oh, right. he, he yeah. like falls and breaks the glass. Ants get into the mask and are biting his face. And so by the time he gets here, he has no protective gear on at all. He has no shoes on at all. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, and, and we have the narration of, uh, you know, of just how worn out and on the end of things he is. But then here we get to the ending, and the ending is so weird. Uh, yeah. And I, I loved this. And it, there are a couple of things I think we can say about what the ending could have been also. But in the end, he goes down in to find the queen. And instead of finding the queen, he finds a room with a with a, like a rectangular doorway as if it was built for humans inside the ant mound. And inside this room – Buried underneath the sand is Kendra, who appears to be maybe still alive or in some suspended animation state. And Michael Murphy sort of surrenders to the ants, and he knows that the ants have won, and they're going to keep winning. And essentially that the ants are going to be the new rulers of the Earth, but they're not going to be killed. The ants have some kind of plans for them, and he's just ready to obey. Yeah, it is a it's a it's a great like suddenly just very trippy and psychedelic sequence, um, you know, with uh, with with images of a of a setting a rising sun. I guess ultimately it's supposed to be rising, though. I feel like they might have filmed a, a setting sun and then reversed it or something. Um, yeah. But very very orange, very very warming, beautiful uh, uh, sequence that again just really kicks the film into high gear. Like suddenly we are in pure visionary filmmaking mode, and we're gazing into the future. These two have been chosen by the ants. They don't know what their purpose is going to be or what this new world is going to consist of. But they're, I guess, they're they're going to be the the prophets of the new age or the spokespeople yeah. of the ants or ambassadors. They're like the – yeah, I was thinking, are they going to be used as the ambassadors to the rest of humanity to, like, explain to them that the ants are in charge now? That's yeah. sort of the the idea I got. They're the I, for one, welcome our new ant overlords. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's also hinted, like, maybe they're gonna, this is going to be the beginning of a new species. They're like the, the Adam and Eve of the new ant world. But so the version of the movie I saw had the shorter ending, but there actually is an alternate ending. Yes. Now, this one, according to Michael Weldon, this one was was cut at the request of the studio uh, mm. because the the lost ending, the original ending, is even more nutso psychedelic. It uh, 
It reminds me a lot of how Disney's The Black Hole from 1979 also originally had a far trippier, weirder, like quasi-religious ending with our characters emerging in the afterlife and humans and robots merging together. And then like the studio apparently was like, that, that, that is too weird. This is a, this is a mainstream motion picture. Uh, uh-huh. But uh, yeah, similar thing going here because the lost ending, like the actual ending that we get in the you know the theatrical cut of the film, is very satisfying, very trippy, very visual. But the lost ending is just an absolute heroic dose of cinematic surrealism. Uh huh. So this ending is even longer. I think it's like seven or eight minutes total. Mm-hmm. And it gives us this sort of muad'dib fever dream vision of a future world in which ant civilization dominates humans. And all of this is presented very, you know, surreally and abstractly with visual flashes um, right. and confu- occasionally like confusing number tags. We see flashes of ant mega projects and humans scampering across them like ants. We see visions of human beings, I guess, in servitude to ants, strangers with magnifying loops uh, uh, on their heads, you know, magnification devices over their eyes, so I guess they can see their masters better. Uh-huh. There's a faceless human that pops up, uh, perhaps the result of some sort of ant-derived human, you know, he's like a drone or something. Uh-huh. Uh, we see James and Kendra's faces becoming one. Um, there's, uh, you know, some sort of uh, erotic flashes of human bodies. There's, oh, and there's just so much going on that, like, it's it's like a, a crazy music video with all sorts of strange, surreal sequences. There's a bald guy buried in the sand with a hole in his head, and ants yeah. come crawling out the hole. Uh, it's just kind of wild. THX eleven thirty eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it just goes into like just extreme visual mode, and and I think it works to a large extent because it is it is the the ant future loosely translated into some sort of visual form that that humans can understand. I would say actually that I think with the long ending, the whole point of like the the abstract imagery and stuff is is to say that we can't understand it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, we can we can we can sort of glimpse it. Yeah, we can't fully understand like why the ants have done this that and the other, like what the yeah. full vision is here. Yeah, that that the future of humans under an earth controlled by ants is going to be so bewildering and incomprehensible to us. It would be like, you know, like what we do with an experiment, like ants trying to understand why they're in a maze in a laboratory. It just doesn't make any sense to them. Yeah. And in this extended um you know, ultimately rejected ending. I think it also, it, it, uh, it's beautiful, but also horrifying at times. Like the, the dude with no face. Um, there's another guy with like some sort of weird implants in his head. Like you get the sense that, yeah, the, the, an ant dominated world in which humans still have a role. It's going to be very different. It's not going to be altogether pleasant. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, this is a strange ending. It is a strange message to potentially hit the viewer with and I have to say, I I, under, I I understand why the studio probably came in and they're like, Saul, Saul, what are you doing? What are you doing with this? You know we can't do this ending. You know. I, I like it. I like the long, weird ending. I like the oh, part where the at least humans are up on like a ziggurat. That, that's mm-hmm. interesting. No, I, I love everything about the extended ending. And I think if you go out and watch this film, you need to make sure you get to see the extended ending as well. And you can choose which one you prefer. But I totally get why the studio was like, you can't do this. No, no. You've got to scale back on this. This is too weird. Well, I guess that's it. Phase four, an ode to our, our future you social overlords. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty great ant movie. 
it, this is the best ant movie I've ever seen. This may be the best, um, the, one of the, I don't know if it's the best animal attack movies I've seen. It's certainly an animal attack movie where the animals have the best strategy. They're not just swarming us, they're outthinking us. So, hey, you want to watch Phase 4 as well? You want to reach Phase 4? Well, you can watch this film pretty much wherever you rent or purchase digital movies. Uh, Olive Films put out a, what seems like a nice Blu-ray of it in the U.S. Uh, not too long ago. Uh, 101 Films put out a really nice Blu-ray in the U.K., and I believe they also put one out in the U.S. as well. Um, I highly recommend you find a version that includes the original ending as an extra. Sometimes you might be able to find that extra you know, floating around online, but that's not reliable, and ultimately you want high quality for this. So I know the 101 Films Blue has the extended ending as an extra, and if you purchase the movie but not rent it on Apple TV, then you get access to this, uh, <laughs> this extra. Uh, uh, but you do have to purchase it through there. Otherwise, you just rent it and you get the, the, the theatrical ending. Oh, and as for the soundtrack, uh, Waxwork uh, Records put out a really beautiful yellow vinyl uh, of this with stunning jacket design full of production art by Saul Bass, stills from that lost ending and expansive liner notes. So this is really cool work looking. If, you're a, if, you, if you collect vinyl and this kind of soundtrack is your thing, uh, you should check this out. I think they might have put out a CD release as well, but I, I couldn't find a, a good place to just stream the uh, the soundtrack, you know, like I don't think it's up on any of the streaming sites, at least as of this recording. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close it out then, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there um, your thoughts on Phase 4, having seen it recently, having seen it back in the day. Did you see it? Were you one of the few people that apparently saw it in theaters back in the 1970s? Uh, whatever your answer is, we'd love to hear from you. Um, as always, Weird House Cinema publishes every Friday. You can find it in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast, but uh, you know we like to, to set most serious matters aside on Fridays and just discuss a strange film. And in, in this case, you know sometimes it's a film that ties in with recent serious episodes that we've, we've recorded. Um, if you want to follow Weird House Cinema on Instagram, I created an Instagram for it. It's Weird House Cinema. That's the, the, the name of the show. That's the name of the Instagram account. Uh, and then also I put up blog posts about... Uh, these episodes at samutamusic.com. That's linked on the Instagram if you want to get there. Uh, but whenever we refer to uh, other pieces of media that are related to it, other trailers, other bits of music, uh, that's often where I will stash that for your easy consumption. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 